This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I want to talk about the issue of friendship, which I think is something that is um, that we all value. I think if we went around the room and we were asked the question, do you value friendship? Uh, if someone said no, we would think that's really odd. And yet we don't seem to have a really good vocabulary for talking about friendship. And in fact, if we look at data over the last 50 years or so, in surveys, there's been both a decline in uh, personal friendships that people say they have and a, a sad increase in what we might call civic hatred. So two, two surveys, one uh, survey that's been given in various forms since like the 1970s or 80s asks uh, people how many good friends do you have? And uh, that used to be about 3.5, and now it's under 2. I'm not sure what the 0.5 of a friend does for you, but it's better than just 3. Uh, so that's, a, that's like a 50% cut in the numbers of friendships. And then sometimes it even shrinks further if the people doing the survey ask... Uh, how many people have you had a conversation with in the last three months about something that matters a great deal to you? And, and the numbers shrink even closer to one then. So we're witnessing a decline in personal friendships. We all know that COVID uh, placed burdens on all of our relationships. Sometimes friendships became stronger, but lots of friendships because you couldn't be present with people uh, became weaker. On, on the issue of civic friendship, which is just broadly, uh, it, it's not people you would interact with daily and spend a lot of time with, but just your sense of, of warm feeling toward fellow citizens. There was a, um, a question that's been posed again since the 70s uh, of Americans, do you hate members of the opposite political party? And that, through the 80s, 90s, and into about 10 years or so ago, 10 to 12 years ago, ranged around 15%. And it spikes up over 40, and even some years close to 50% of American citizens who say that they hate members of the other political party. That's a pretty striking statistic, right, on friendship and on civic hatred. Uh, if you read... The people that Aquinas read and took seriously, like Aristotle, he would have said that one of the most important things you can have in a civil society is friendship. Because as he puts it, where you have friendship, you have less need of justice. Right? And Or the other way to put that is where friendship uh, declines in a society, you're going to have people more and more resorting to litigation. Right to, to calling the police or suing one another. So friendship seems to be in a bad way for us, um, and yet it's important to us. Um, one of the other things that's kind of striking about modern versus older views of friendship is someone like Aristotle, whom I just mentioned, who on these matters is probably, other than St. Augustine, the most important influence on Thomas Aquinas, when he writes this book called The Ethics, which has, I just, I'm just about to teach it in my moral philosophy class at Baylor, there are 10 books in this, and it considers happiness, it considers a bunch of virtues. Two full books out of the 10 are devoted to the topic of friendship. That's pretty astonishing. If you pick up, by contrast, a textbook in ethics written in the last 200 years, you might find a footnote on friendship. It's all about rights and abstract justice and, uh, and law and, and duties that we owe equally to everyone. Friendship is one of those things that's, uh, that, that uh, certainly we owe things to friends, but not in the way we owe every stranger things. And so the ancients gave a lot more attention to the topic of friendship. 
Uh, so much so that when Aquinas talks about charity, the virtue of charity, the infused virtue of charity, he describes it as friendship with God. And he uses some of what Aristotle has to say about friendship to develop what he means by charity. And I may come back to that toward the end. So one of the things I tell my students in uh, my moral philosophy class is that partly we study a number of figures in, uh, in the history of philosophy. I go chronologically backwards. So I start with Nietzsche in the 19th century and work my way back to Aristotle and Aquinas, partly because students tend to think that whatever you do last is the truth. And so I'd much rather have them think that Aristotle and Aquinas uh, is the truth rather than Nietzsche. And, and uh, the other thing is that Nietzsche is one of these thinkers, he's famous for proclaiming the death of God, and he has these really subtle kind of psychological analysis of what he thinks is wrong with traditional morality and particularly religious morality. And so students, some students think this is kind of cool, this Nietzsche guy, and they're interested in him. Other students are really kind of troubled by him, and they don't know what to say. And my view as a teacher is that I'd rather have my students troubled at the beginning of the semester so that this might motivate them to try and discover things in what we're reading and what we're talking about. And then we work our way back to what I take to be the, um, the more persuasive views about ethics in Aristotle and Aquinas. But I also tell the students that one of the things I hope they'll get is a better, richer vocabulary for talking about good and evil, virtue and vice, uh, a good life and a not-so-good life, a base or a noble life. And I think we need to do that with friendship as well. We need a better vocabulary for talking about friendship. Um, C.S. Lewis says, he's got uh, a wonderful, my wife and I, uh, off and on, every other year, sort of team teach, she teaches at Baylor as well, we team teach a, a capstone seminar on friendship. We read novels, we look at films, and we also read uh, some philosophy in that class. And, um, and we look at particularly Aristotle's types of friendship that he talks about in the Nicomachean Ethics. But we also read Lewis's Four Loves, which is a wonderful book, a very accessible book. Uh, Lewis, I think, has not, uh, is not dated. You can pick up his essays and read them, and they're very fresh. And Lewis says at one point in, in this thing on the Four Loves, uh, where there's affection, eros, uh, agape, or charity, and then friendship is one of the four loves that he discusses. He said friendships typically begin with some person hearing something that someone else has said and saying, what, you too? Meaning that friends tend to have a shared, somewhat peculiar take on things, right? So you find someone, you might be in a group, and, and this is also the case that many of our friendships come to us by chance, right? We happen to be in a certain school, in a certain homeroom, seated next to a certain person for an entire year, or we happen to be in the same band, or in the same team, or debate club, or working on a yearbook. You spend lots of time with people, and you might enjoy working with all the people. Usually there's one or two people you enjoy less, being human the way we are. But you might enjoy working with all of them, and yet you might not call all of them your friends. Or you might do so somewhat loosely, but over time, only one or two people from that group do you stay connected to. And you look back and you wonder, well, what, what brought us together? And it's, it's chance, or at a higher level, perhaps divine providence, right, that brought you together. So it, we all want friendships. Friendship is important to us, but it's also something that it's a little weird to go in search of, right? My students tell me that there may be these friendship apps, like there are dating apps where you can put in uh, things to, to find people who share. And, and I suppose you could develop friends that way too, but simply because th there's a certain unanticipated kind of chemistry that you have with a friend, right? You can also have this with someone you fall in love with. But with a friend going through a list of things that you like in common, you could have somebody line up perfectly on all those boxes and still not end up being your friend. It's like, 
I used to like those things, but I don't like them as much with you, even though you say you like them. That's possible, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. So there's something about sharing a sort of angle on the world with a friend or someone that you feel very comfortable with. And Lewis also says that, he says two other things that seem contradictory. He says that we seek friendship like we do philosophy or um, or enjoy something that's beautiful, not because of something we're going to get out of it, not because it, 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 in a sense, is instrumental to other things, but simply because it's good for its own sake. But then he also says, you know, we need friends for our physical and mental well-being. We need friends even to know ourselves because friends give us information about ourselves and let us talk about things that are important to ourselves in ways that we can explore. So friendship is both desirable for its own sake and also lots of good things come out of it. Aristotle, in the opening of his ethics, he wants to find out what's the one thing or set of things that we desire as human beings that we would want no matter if nothing else came out of them. And he settles upon the notion of happiness, that happiness is something that we desire not as a means to something else like money or honor, right? We desire happiness for its own sake. And we got to be careful when we think about the word happiness because Aristotle means something a little bit different. So we often think of happiness as I'm happy now because I'm done with all the stuff that I was burdened with all week. And now I can just chill out or veg out or whatever we want to call it, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. We need rest, right? But for Aristotle, happiness is not the cessation or end of activity. It's actually activity. It's not the kind of activity that you've just got to get through and you find burdensome. It's more like the sort of things you were involved with in high school and maybe are in college now, some of which I mentioned earlier, maybe you were on an athletic team. Maybe you were uh, learned to play an instrument. Maybe you were part of a theater group or worked on the yearbook or whatever it might be. Notice that for most of those things, I'm not sure about working on the yearbook, but for the rest of them, there's a difference between learning to become good at the thing, training, practicing, and actually performing once you're good, right? So, and Aristotle and Plato are always pointing to athletics and crafts and training in musical instruments in answer to the question, how do you become good? You become good by developing good habits. And we know that if you took piano or guitar lessons when you were little, or you learned to play a sport like basketball or something, you, there were lots of things you had to learn to do with your body that felt unnatural, right? And if you had a good teacher, that good teacher was saying, yeah, that's better on, on the piano, but you're still not holding your hands right and your fingers aren't moving in the right way. Go back and do that another 50 times, right? If you had a good a guitar teacher or a violin teacher, same thing. How are you holding your fingers, right? And you gotta get the habits right at the beginning or everything else is not gonna be good. And it's painful at the beginning. And there's a lot of rote repetition. If you learn to play basketball, you gotta learn to dribble. You gotta learn to dribble with your head up. You gotta learn to dribble with your head up while running. You gotta learn to dribble with your head up while anticipating all of the things you could do, driving, shooting, passing. It's a completely, and, and as you're doing those drills, you're saying to yourself, do it this way, not that way, right? If you're incorporating the advice of your teachers, you actually become your own critic. I got to do that drill again because I did it wrong, right? Once you become good and you're in the performance, it's very different. You still need to practice between performances, right? But the experience is very different. You can't be saying to yourself, okay, now move your fingers here if you're performing a Mozart piano concerto. 
Because if you're saying that to yourself and the, and the tempo picks up, you're three or four notes behind. And you're, you're giving a very bad performance. Similarly, if you're playing a sport and you're actually trying to consciously think through the next step and say them out loud to yourself or even silently, somebody's stolen the ball and is going the other way. So expertise gives you ease and, and something that's automatic in a sense, right? So you do it with ease and with pleasure and it's automatic. You also, in these moments, lose track of yourself, right? When you're practicing, you're focused on yourself on what you're doing right or you're not. If you're in the middle of a performance, you're not thinking about yourself. You're kind of lost in the performance, right? We talk about athletes being in the zone, right? It means they're just, they're not consciously thinking. They're hyper aware, but they're not consciously thinking in the way they were when they were practicing. The other thing that happens is that we lose track of time, right? In the middle of a really great performance, you could have a break and look over and think, oh my goodness, two hours have passed. Or same experience, right, with being with good friends. You look at your watch and you think, oh no, it's 2 a.m., I got a test at eight and I haven't started studying. You lose track of time and in a sense you lose track of yourself. With friends, we don't have the kind of self-consciousness that we have in other social settings, right? So the virtuous life for Aristotle and for Aquinas is very much a matter of getting your habits right, but then as you start to get your habits right, doing what's right becomes more enjoyable so that there's actually delight in being good rather than pain in being good. If we constantly experience a gap between, as we all do to some extent, between what we know we ought to do and what we do, and we're constantly smacking our passions down, don't do that, don't want that, don't think that way, right? We're not yet virtuous, we're on the way, and that is not virtue, right? Torturing yourself for doing things wrong is not virtue. Even having to deeply, rightly chastise yourself for doing things wrong, that's a necessary prerequisite for getting to virtue because we have to recognize how far we are away from it. But getting to virtue in the Catholic tradition actually makes the virtuous life enjoyable. Aristotle's advice to you would be become virtuous and try to carve out in your life as many activities that you enjoy doing for their own sake as you can. We all have to do things that are just instrumental, that we're only doing because of what we're going to get out of them in terms of a paycheck or a GPA or entrance to medical school or a good job as a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it might be. But there's a danger for us. Uh, there's a danger, especially in America. Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French commentator of this big book, Democracy in America, the 19th century. And he had great admiration for American democracy. He had great admiration for our energy and our entrepreneurship and our willingness to go out and create new opportunities and build things together as citizens. But he also worried he, he describes this strange melancholy that Americans have in the midst of their abundance. Strange melancholy in the midst of abundance. And he says this arises in part because Americans think that happiness is right around the next corner. The promotion, the new house, the new car, right? The kids getting into the, well, now it's what the best preschool we can get them into, whatever it might be. Happiness is right around the next corner. They turn that corner and realize they don't have it. And instead of learning from that, most Americans think it's around the next corner, right? And then we turn that corner, I'm speaking as an American here, we turn that corner and it's not there. And Tocqueville says, the sad thing about this for many Americans is that they do that until they die. You don't want to lead a life 
where everything is a means to something else. You want to have things in your life, activities in your life, which you enjoy doing for their own sake. And you want to reflect upon which of those activities is more worthy of your time. You might enjoy playing video games, and that's fine. But just because you enjoy playing video games for their own sake doesn't mean that you should spend 18 hours a day playing video games. Right? So there's a question about finding activities that you enjoy for their own sake, and then making judgments about which activities are actually genuinely worth your time as a human being and as a Catholic or as a Christian or whatever you might, whatever you might be. So friendship is one of those things for Aristotle, right? It's a, and, and Aristotle talks about three types of friendship. Friendships of pleasure, friendships of utility, and virtuous friendships. The first two he calls imperfect. They're not evil. Friendships of pleasure, he thinks, are predominant amongst the young. Friendships of utility amongst older people, which is why your parents are always saying to you, make some connections there so you can get a job or make sure you get that internship for next summer and you're not just hanging out with your friends having fun. These are not evil. Friendships of pleasure are people you just enjoy being with. Friendships of utility are people you might work together. So the things I mentioned earlier, right? You might work on a yearbook or you might work at a job and you enjoy working with the people. But person takes a new job, transfers schools. You might have a little bit of regret that you didn't keep in touch, but there's nothing, it wasn't deep enough for you to actually devote time to sustaining the friendship. Nothing wrong with those. Right? And in fact, all of our real friendships, there might be an exception to this, which I'm gonna talk about at the end, but most of our real friendships start by simply enjoying people, right? You know whether it's merely a friendship of pleasure or friendships of utility for Aristotle if the circumstances change and the friendship goes away, right? So a friendship of pleasure is the person you love seeing at a party at 11 o'clock on a Friday night because you know this person's a lot of fun, you're gonna go sit next to that person. And then you happen to take an eight-hour road trip with this person. And three hours in, you're banging your head against the window saying, this was funny for an hour at midnight on Friday. It's not funny for three hours straight in a car. Right? So that's a friendship of pleasure that goes away. Friendships of utility, you have a common project. Aristotle says one of the reasons that these are imperfect is that they go away over time. Another reason is that the friend is incidental. So what you like is having fun at the party, and this is a person who has fun at the party. Right? What you like is doing well in your job, and this person is a good, talented colleague, and you like working with that person. Obviously, nothing evil about those relationships, but you're not really involved in that person's life for his or her own sake. And what Aristotle says about true friendship is that the friend is loved for his or her own sake. Right? Those other friendships can develop into that. Right? They can develop, friendships of utility or pleasure can develop into real friendships. And typically, your friendships start there. People you're having fun with, people you're working with, or engaged in a common project, and then you find a deeper connection over time. Right? Friendship is reciprocal for Aristotle. You can't have, well, you can have unrequited friendship, but you don't really have a friendship, right? You can want to be friends with somebody, just like you can be in love or attracted to someone and have that not uh, responded or reciprocated. But friendship is reciprocal. And one of the reasons I mentioned earlier uh, about civic friendship for Aristotle, that it's important, that, that you have less need of justice, it's because of this kind of natural reciprocity in friendship. It's possible that there could be inequities in friendship. If those become too great, you no longer have a friendship, right? So if someone's complaining to you, and we do this sometimes more in romantic relationships than in friendship, I'm investing a lot here. You don't seem to be investing anything, right? Someone can wake up and say, oh, yeah, you're right. I've been distracted by X, Y, or Z. But if that continues systematically over time, you don't have a friendship, according to Aristotle. 
because it's actually got to be reciprocal. And in fact, in, in good friendships, we aren't calculating who gave exactly what. We, you know, don't worry about it, we say to our friends, right? I paid a little more on the check this time. You can do it. Now, we might have friends, and we might be one of those friends who's a little bit cheap or tight with money. Um, and there might be inequities that develop there as in other areas. But in good, good friendships can sustain that. If in a good friendship, that frequently becomes a source of humor amongst the friends. So that you can actually make fun of your one friend who's a little cheap. Right? And that, that's a way, that's a way of equalizing it. We know you never give quite as much, but we still love you. Right? There, there are times when those can become, the discrepancy can become so great that you wonder, you look at the person and say, you, you don't really care about me or the rest of our friends, right? But there can be, and there always are discrepancies because each of us has imperfections that our friends are more aware of and our family than we are. It's one of the reasons we need friends is because friends can give us the kind of self-knowledge that we need when we need it. And this is often a very difficult moment for those of us who feel like a friend is going astray in some way. Maybe with respect to faith, maybe just with respect to daily duties, maybe they're getting addicted to something, maybe they're in a relationship that is not healthy for them. Right? We have duties just as friends. We have duties as Christians as well. We have duties as friends to try and correct our friends. This is really difficult though, right? And, and if you're a good friend, you find this enormously difficult and a source of great anguish because we all know that there are lots of ways we can go wrong correcting our friends, right? For instance, in the cafeteria at lunch to take a blowhorn and announce to everyone in the room what the deficiencies of your friend are is not a good idea. And figuring out, Aristotle says, each virtue has to be done. You don't just perform the external act. You have to do it in the right way, in the right measure, at the right time, with the right people. Every act of virtue involves a prudential judgment that, yeah, this is the time. This is the place for me to try to talk about this. And even then, of course, the difficulty is that the friend might reject what we're saying, right? And that's a very difficult moment in a friendship to live with that. Or conversely, if we got friends trying to tell us something that we know at a gut level might be true about ourselves, but we're resisting it, right? These are really difficult moments in friendships. And they require all sorts of virtues for the friendship to be sustained, at least a willingness amongst friends to say, okay, I was really mad yesterday. I'm over that. Let's move on, right? We do have to forgive and to the extent we can forget with friends, unless that's developing into a really unhealthy relationship where it's no longer a friendship. We also do to some extent overlook things in our friends, right? We'll overlook things in our friends that are kind of faults in them that in a stranger we would be quite critical or maybe in a sibling we would be quite critical of but not of our friend. That can be okay, right? Because if it's, if it's about minor things, because I don't think we should take Aristotle when he says that the best friendship is a virtuous friendship to indicate that either that any of the friends is perfect in virtue or that our job as a friend is to be the constant virtue coach for the rest of our friends, right? A, a good way to lose all your friends is to be a constant virtue coach, Right? And again, there can be some, some of us have this tendency, and in a good friendship, that tendency will be recognized and it will become a source of humor, occasionally irritation, but also it's possible for that to become a source of humor amongst the friends, that we can laugh at ourselves and at one another, right? I've got a bunch of friends. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., went to an all-Catholic boys' school, uh, and I've got uh, maybe eight guys that I keep in touch with regularly. Some of these guys I've known since like third grade. This is a peculiarity of, 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 of uh, Catholic 
boys' school in the area in which I went there. And also the one guy from our class has been the development officer for 20 years, and he kind of keeps us together. But when we get together, and, and they're very different life stories with these guys. Uh, some have had serious trouble. Some have been enormously successful. Um, it's okay to talk about your success or your kid's success a little bit, and we all want to know about that. But if somebody kind of goes on about that too long, we're like, yeah, we knew you when, and we can tell stories about you when. And so there's, nobody is, at least for any period of time, nobody is uh, presumptuous. Nobody tries to put on airs, right? Because that's not what we're about as friends, right? With friends, we can be ourselves and we, and we also all get made fun of. Everybody gets made fun of. Right. And if somebody were to react sort of violently to that or resist it, we would wonder what was going on. Right. Because we're such good friends and we've known one another so long that the teasing about what we were like in high school and even what we're like now is all something we really enjoy. And I think there is something like that in true friendships. Let me say just a couple words about how we ought to think about uh, friendship. Uh, in relation to charity. Aquinas really strikingly develops this analogy between what Aristotle calls friendship and uh, what, um, what the scriptures speak of as God's love for us. It's audacious in a way because, remember what I said about Aristotle, there's reciprocity in friendship. In fact, there's rough equality in Aristotle's notion of friendship. So that Aristotle finds it hard to think about how people of widely disparate economic or, uh, or educational backgrounds could be friends. We certainly don't have that with God, right? There's no equality that we have with God. But quite, so, so there are disanalogies between friendship and charity. There are also analogies, differences and similarities. What's the similarity? Aquinas says friendship is principally about communication. It's about sharing a life. It's about belonging together. Right? This is in our society where we're plagued with loneliness and isolation. Friendship is really the thing that we're hungering for that we have a hard time finding. Friendship is about communication and sharing a life. And through grace, St. Thomas goes on to say, God shares his divine life with us. In fact, he shares the interior life of the, of the Trinity with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, how do we respond to that? We respond with gratitude and by giving back to God everything that we have and are. Aristotle, at one point in the ethics, asks a question that to him is a real puzzle. Friendship is reciprocal. So it's both about loving and being loved. He says, well, is it better to love or to be loved? And it's a little odd that he chooses as an example a mother's love for her children. First of all, because Aristotle thought he wasn't as bad as a lot of these old male philosophers, but he did think that women were inferior to men. So for him to pick a mother as the example of the height of friendship and for him to pick a mother's relationship to a child where it's not reciprocal, right? But he says, we admire this, this love that a mother has for her child. And the mother knows that what's most important there is loving the child. The mother certainly wants to be loved back by the child. But the mother can't make her love conditional on the child's response. And at the level at which the infant can respond, Right? This isn't fully formed adult love. Aristotle there is right on the cusp of a really deep insight that I think only someone from faith could see. Right? That friendship at its highest form is about this kind of generous, self-giving love for others that we're able to do in our own small way with those around us, because as John says, he has first loved us. 
He has first made us his friends so that we can go out and make others our friends. But in making others our friends, we should be careful about that language. Lewis, and I'll end with this, Lewis at the very end of his discussion of friendship says, you know, one of the dangers, and he actually gives a different lecture um, about something he calls the inner ring, which is a great short lecture that he gave. I can talk about that in the question period if you'd like. But Lewis says there's this danger with friendship, which is, and, and if the friends are really high quality, this can be an even greater danger. It's a kind of pride in our friendships. We can look around and say, we're all virtuous friends, and we have what lots of other people don't have. And the danger is, because we all reflect this goodness in one another and this appreciation of one another, the danger is we'll think we deserve it, these friendships. And this is where Lewis thinks the gospel, the teaching of faith, is a wonderful corrective to us. Because in the end, we have not been brought together by our own free choice solely. We have not been brought together for the sake solely of our own enjoyment of our friends. We've been brought together by a providential God, and we've been brought together so that our friendships might give glory to him and to all those he loves. Thank you. Um, but there's, but if we're really trying to get good at something that's very difficult, um, it, it's, it involves sacrifice, right? And, and, and it involves some degree of pain, the right kind of pain, right? It's not, it's not as if, if we work out just inflicting pain on ourselves is necessarily good. Right? But if you do work out, particularly after you haven't worked out for a long time, it's going to hurt. Right? And as you attempt to get stronger or faster or better at something physically, just as if you try to get better at playing the violin or the guitar. Right? Now, you can also be someone who loves that experience, who loves the challenge and loves the fact that you're making progress. But there's still a, some degree of self-consciousness in that, right, of having to deliberately say, no, don't do it that way, do it this way. As I said about the performance, if you're in the middle of a performance, you can't afford to do that, right? You can't, it, and it, because you're not doing that, as I said, it doesn't mean that you're not aware, you're kind of hyper-aware, right? But it's an awareness that's processing everything instantaneously. That's a difference and a higher level of experience, I think. And, and when I said you lose, in a sense, track of yourself and you lose track of time, there's a kind of intimation of eternity in that, right? What would, e what would eternity be like? Well, it wouldn't be just the now frozen and empty, right? Eternity is a, is a now, it's, it's a, a way of transcending time, but in which you're hyper-actualized, realized as a human soul, right? Because you're in the presence of God. But it's also uh, an experience that is absolutely full, and not empty, right? Because we can think about, well, time is where all this rich stuff is going on. There are all these changes. But I think Aristotle's on to something when he talks about these moments when we're most actual, right? Those are, there's change, but there's also a, a kind of transcendence of the change where everything is being done instantaneously, right? And, and I think that is, I mean, you can reflect on it later, Right or during a timeout or a break, but those are moments that if you could relive them, you would want to relive them, right? And if you trans, 
translate that over from the arts and sports to how we live as human beings. Moments when we're most fulfilled as human beings. And that has something to do with what we think it means to be human and what's most valuable in human activities. Those are moments that are like those moments in athletics and in, uh, in, perfor- in performances of other sort. Right? And, and this should, this accords very nicely with a Catholic sacramental view of things, right? Because especially in the Mass, Time and eternity are united, right? And we're brought into, indeed, take into our very being, the being of God, right? And so we can learn a lot from, and Aquinas thought we could learn a lot from these pagan philosophers like Aristotle who had insights about the human condition and came very often to the cusp of of what we know on the base of revelation. I would think Aristotle does that in this notion of these moments of full actualization and activity. He also does it when he looks to a mother's love for her children as a kind of model for friendship, that it is better to love than to be loved. Does that help? Yeah. Other questions? Yes, please. Yeah. I think for Aristotle, acquaintances acquaintances could be on the edge of friendships of pleasure and friendships of utility, right? Um, acquaintances could also be people if you're living in a in a high rise somewhere, a, a high rise dorm or a high rise apartment building, just people you say hello to. Right? Those those aren't as thick as what Aristotle means by. Um, civic friendship, but they're the kinds of things that are closer to what he calls civic friendship. People you interact with from day to day whom you might not know that well, and if you got to know them, they might come from very different backgrounds, might think very different things, but you share some kind of bond because you live here and this is we're part of this city or state or country or whatever it might be. Uh, does that make sense? I think acquaintances would probably be, although you could have work acquaintances, right, that could become friendships of utility. You get a, somebody you just see at work, and then suddenly you're assigned to work on a project together, and that, that becomes initially at least a friendship of utility. For I mean, Aristotle also thinks that virtuous friendships are both pleasurable and useful. Right? That's the great thing about those friendships is that they're enduring, they're reciprocal, and they include what we want in the other friendships. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I started out saying that I think it, it would, it, if somebody said they don't want friends, we would think that was a little odd. And so I'd, I'd want to talk about what the, what the conditions are there. I mean, I, I think someone, just like we can be hurt in romantic relationships and then say, I'm done with that, right? No more love for me. Um, <laughs> Uh, we could say that about friendship too, right? Because one of the horrible things about treachery both in romance and in friendship is that in friendships we, we are vulnerable to our friends and we share things with our friends that we don't share and don't have any obligation to share with just people we meet, right? And so you could imagine someone... Uh, undergoing a betrayal in friendship who says, I'm done with friendship. But I don't know. I don't, I'd like to hear more uh, about um, the idea that, that you know, someone just doesn't enjoy having friends at all. I mean, I would want to ask whether there's an enjoyment of other human persons at all. And then I think if there is, Aristotle would say, well, there's some at least kind of friendly feeling there, right? I think he thinks friendship is a very, you can give precise types like pleasure, utility, and virtue, but friendship itself is a pretty wide, loose thing. And it may not be as wide as Facebook thinks it is, right, where you just friend people um, and there's nothing else going on other than friending them. 
But Aristotle's willing to, he thinks there are really serious, noble types of friendship that are very important to us. But he also thinks this kind of acquaintance thing, that's a sort of friendship, right? Uh, he says that human beings have friendly feelings toward other human beings, right? So I would want to start there. You don't, maybe someone doesn't desire super intense friendships. That's different, right? But is there some sort of enjoyment that you have with other people at all? And Aristotle would be willing to call that a kind of at least friendly feeling. Um, there are lots of other things that go into making up a really good life for Aristotle, right? And the, but you see, things like the practice of the virtues for Aristotle, so you could say, well, I just want to be just. I'm not concerned about friendship. But justice for Aristotle, if it's practiced rightly, we actually take a kind of delight in doing the right thing for others. And Aristotle would say that's an element of friendship. Right, so almost any virtue that you exercise toward other people for Aristotle is going to have a, you might say, a kind of spark of the potential for friendship. Other, other questions? Yeah, please. I think social media and my precious here, overused, harm all sorts of things. And I think the data is increasingly clear on that. Um, you know, one of the nice things about ha during COVID was I, I reconnected with lots of people I hadn't seen who are in other parts of the country. Hey, let's, let's get a Zoom next week. You know, but after about four months of that, that was enough, right? And after about a year and a half in the classroom, it was way too much. Um, so uh, social media certainly can benefit human relationships, friendships, family relationships, for people who are apart, right? Um, but, I mean, we have a, a lot of data on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok stuff that some people, and it seems to be the data that I read, I think in the New York Times recently, indicates that the damage is worse for young women than it is for young men. Uh, the the issue of self-image. And I mean, the, the danger with this stuff, right, is if you're always scrolling through and you're not really living, you're looking at all these allegedly beautiful presentations of the great things of the beautiful people are doing, right? And it's easy to start to think, my life's, life's not like that, or how can I get a picture that I can post on Facebook that looks as good as that? I don't know that many of us go that far. But there is a, a sense of being passive with respect to what other people are presenting. There's, there's also a, um, there's a great line in an early poem by T.S. Eliot, uh, Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. People used to read this in high schools a lot. I don't think they do much anymore. But this is a guy who's kind of trapped in himself. And, and at one point he says, there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. And it's the idea that we're sort of putting on masks to meet people, right? To construct images. I think that's one of the dangers we know of Facebook and other Instagram. You guys are not on Facebook's only old people like me now. It's not a, um, that's not something you guys are interested in at all. You know, the one, one other thing that I, I mentioned uh, that I might come back to that, so if it's right to say that even for Aristotle, that loving is a more a mark of a friend than being loved, what do we do about suffering and anguish in friendship, right? I mentioned it on the side of being a friend who feels like you're losing a friend or a friend's not behaving the way you think is healthy for that person. And that can be a source of great anguish. And, and Aristotle thinks we have an obligation to suffer with our friends, but he doesn't make it the centerpiece of his account of friendship. Whereas we know that Christ in charity Right? It says, a greater love than this hath no man, than that he lay down his life for his friends. It is the case, I think, in, in human experience, and especially if we're believers, that occasions of great affliction and suffering and loss and death, which we tend naturally to flee from, and in our culture we flee from more than ever, 
Because all we look at are images of things that are constructed to look fine and happy. Those experiences, which are universal, the experience that Aristotle might have called tragedy of external circumstances, events, things happening to us, Aristotle was willing to admit that even a really virtuous person could have their happiness marred if they lost family members or he speaks of Priam losing his country, right? Um, it's not just that we want to say that's true, that tragedy can impact happiness, I think. I think we want to say that um, that some of the best friendships can be born in those moments. You're not thinking about those moments as ways of making friends, but you sometimes, and sometimes you discover that people with whom you had a, what you thought was a fairly superficial friendship beforehand, you wouldn't have called it superficial in a pejorative sense, but a, a, a grade up from acquaintance, right? That suddenly they're there in the midst of your affliction, your suffering, your loss. And, and a deeper friendship can be born in that moment than ever could be born by just enjoying hanging out with people. Right? And that's, that's a, I think that is a universal human truth, but it's something that, because of the gospel, because of writers like Aquinas, we should be able to readily identify more than, Aristotle again comes up to the edge of it, but he can't quite see it. And it's a little bizarre for him to say that your best friendships could be born in the moments of greatest loss and affliction and tragedy. But that was certainly true for Jesus and the disciples, right? They only really started to become the friends he needed after his death and resurrection. There's a lot to do with grace working there, right? But also them going through the experience of Good Friday and Holy Saturday, right? So we should be on the alert for the fact that we may in, that God may be working in such a way in the midst of tragedy, that one of the goods that will be brought out of it will be deeper Christian friendships. And we should also be alert to the fact that when others near us are suffering affliction, that might be the moment that we're most called to be their friend. Yes, in the back, please. Yeah, so I sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier. I'm happy to say Aquinas is better on this than Aristotle. Um, so it, it's, um, um, Aristotle thinks there can be a kind of friendship. There's not perfect equality for him. Um, you know, Aquinas sees some inequality between men and women, but Aquinas also says that, and, and, and some of that in Aquinas is based upon bad biology, right? It's simply, it's simply based upon ancient biology that makes no sense. Um, but Aquinas also says that amongst husband and wife, there is the greatest friendship. Because there is what he says about our life with God that God gives to us. There is communion and union in all aspects of life between husband and wife. So there is a much greater degree of sharing in, in a common life between husband and wife than there is between any other, in any other human relationship. So that's a pretty strong statement on, on Aquinas' part, I think. And if he, he would certainly, he wanted to take biology and science as seriously as he could in the time. I think if he had modern biology, he would even revise the other things that he says. Um, uh, some of that's social and some of it's biological. But that, that's one of the ways in which Christianity introduces a kind of very changed view of human persons and of, of their dignity. Other questions? Objections? Refutations? Yes? I spent a little time in some third places. 
I've read about how there's been kind of a gap in terms of this. Yeah. Because yep. <laughs> Yeah. That's a really good question. And some of it has to do with this, again, right? Because we're spending a lot of time on this when we're at home uh, or even at work when it would be better for us just to allow our souls to become bored and discover deeper desires that we have through being bored. Um, boredom's not an intrinsic good, but it's often an instrumental good. And, and what this does is, is, in a way, to keep us from ever being bored without having any dissatisfaction of any deep longings in our souls either. Uh, and boredom can trigger, I mean, boredom can do bad things to us, but boredom can also trigger a sense that there's something I want that I don't have, and I need to go look for that. And maybe it would involve being with other people in some way, right? Um, that's part of it. Our lives are so structured, right? Our time is so structured. And you all have grown up. Um, I mean, I'm really happy looking back on it that I had the really neglected childhood that I had in the sense that I was just out doing things. And, you know, you'd come home from dinner and then you'd go back out. And, and my own, I mean, I'm guilty of this as a parent, my own kids. Um, so that we, we, what we're taking away from young people is the spontaneous capacity to just go out and find their way. Right? I mean, the decline of young people in the workforce over the last 30 years, Brookings Institution did a study of this, it's astonishing. It's not that young people, you people, are slackers. That's not the problem. In fact, many high school students are busier, working harder than ever. But they're in year-long sports programs. They're taking 18 AP classes. Right? They're doing this and doing... These are all things that are monitored by parents, coaches, and teachers. Best thing you can do at some point, if you haven't done it yet, is to work retail somewhere. Because if you work retail, you have to deal with coworkers, bosses, and the general public. None of whom are inclined to love you or are being paid to make you look good the way various coaches and other people are, right? And you kind of learn through experiences like that. I mean, when I had my first job, I got my driver's license. Those were the two big experiences for me between the age of like 14 and 18. And because those meant independence, not that I wanted, not that I disliked my parents, but it did meant, it meant the opportunity to spontaneously get out there and explore the world with other people. And I think the way, and, and COVID, Right, it's just been really horrible for this on top of everything else. Um, but we need to regain that sense of spontaneous social life. It is still there in ethnic communities. I mean, immigrant communities have this much better than older American communities. I grew up in a community where I, I'm not Irish, but all my friends were Irish in this Catholic high school that I went to. And I always want my Catholic friends at, my, at the funerals of people I know because they know how to have a good time at a wake, but they also know how to remember and honor. They know how to sing songs. They know how to tell stories. They know how to give toasts. And everybody goes away feeling better. So many of our funerals now are just people showing up and shaking hands and saying we like, but you don't get, there's no, there's no ritual to it, right? There's no joy. There's no real sorrow. So there's no depth of sorrow and there's no great joy. And funerals ought to have both of those. It's, but it's, I always want my, when my parents died, I wanted my best Irish buddies at those funerals and at the wakes. And everybody later said, what was that toast that that guy read? Could you have him type that out? And they're all using it at other funerals, right? Because they sense something in this, it's not completely spontaneous, it's, it's what cultures do. 
And you don't want to make this stuff up on the fly at the moment of a funeral. But our cultures, our, our immigrant cultures, um, we need desperately as Americans to learn and to become reconnected to those immigrant cultures. Because at the most important moments of joy and sorrow, we now as Americans have nothing to say. We don't know what to say and we don't know what to do and we don't know how to feel. And that's hard to get back because if you're coming from an immigrant culture, it's been built up sometimes over centuries, right? And people get immersed in it from the time they're children. We're raising generations in America who don't know what to say or feel in relation to life's most important events, whether those should be happy or sad. And I don't know how we establish this. Maybe we should all join immigrant communities and just hang out and watch what they do because they seem to do it a lot better than what mainstream Americans, all of whom were at one point part of immigrant communities, but where those communities have just become eviscerated over time. But we need to be around people who know how to do it. It's hard to figure that out from scratch on your own. Thank you.